Before I read the books that our guest today, Chris Smage, wrote, I knew I didn't want a world where fake food, food manufactured in factories, was what we ate as a society. I didn't believe that protein made in stainless steel vats could give our minds, bodies, souls and communities what they need to survive and thrive. But what I didn't know is that manufactured protein, fake food or precision fermentation, however you want to term it, literally will not work. Listen into this episode to understand exactly why manufactured food is not an option for our world going forward and what our only alternative is. This episode will leave you staggered by the statistics around manufactured food, informed as to why it is not a feasible solution to our world's problems, and with so much more confidence in the belief that real food, real farms and real people are what we need to find our way out of our current crisis. Welcome to the Ancestral Kitchen podcast with Alison, a European town dweller in central Italy, and Andrea, living on a newly created family farm in northwest Washington State, USA. Pull up a chair at the table and join us as we talk about eating, cooking, and living with ancient ancestral food wisdom in a modern world kitchen. Hello and welcome back to Ancestral Kitchen Podcast. I've got a guest today, Chris Mage, who is the author of two books. The first one, A Small Farm Future, and then more recently, Saying No to a Farm-Free Future. As well as researching, writing and campaigning on local food systems, Chris also runs a small holding in Somerset, which is in southwest England, where he feeds his family and grows vegetables to sell commercially. So thank you ever so much for giving us your time and your expertise, Chris, today. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Yeah, very nice to be here. Thank you. So the push that made me want to finally get you on the podcast was that latest book, Saying No to a Farm-Free Future. And for our listeners who perhaps haven't read it, I just wanted to explain it's, uh, for me, it felt like it was an incredible exploration of why commercially made fake meats will not work and how we need to re-ruralise and look to what the locality around us can provide in order to secure our future as a species. And what I'd love to do talking to you today is to empower our listeners. Most of them are already interested in, if not committed, to living a life where they care for, where they perhaps farm, and where they eat what's around them in the way that our ancestors did for most of history. I want to give them access to your research and experience and show them honestly, which is what your book does, what we're facing. (laughs) I think that most of them will have heard of precision fermentation, which they might call fake food, and they'll be wary of it, if not anti it, but mainly because of health, you know, of the planet, but also of themselves. Um, but if they're like me or, or like I was before I read your book, they won't necessarily understand all the assumptions built into it 
all the consequences that come from it and the inherent impossibility of it based on the current climate change situation we're in. And I'd like to dive into all of that. Right, if great. you're ready. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay, so let's just start with the first question we ask all our guests is what was the last thing you ate? Right, well, um, it's, uh, it's 9am here in, uh, in Somerset. I haven't actually eaten any breakfast, which uh, sometimes is, uh, uh, is the way uh, my days go. But I had a great meal last night with a bunch of people here on the holding where everyone... Um, cooked um brought brought some stuff sat around the fire so we had some potatoes uh roast potatoes from the farm salad um um, some figs actually from a a fig tree of ours Mm. that we has finally started producing figs and uh yeah so a bunch of really nice um sort of uh fresh fruit and veg really from um from the farm um mostly so yeah um, and sharing with people and, uh, just makes any food yeah, ab- so much nicer. Yeah, absolutely. We had a whole bunch of different people here. Um, some sort of we got sort of some people resident on the site and friends of theirs and colleagues. So yeah, nice, um, like nice social occasion. How big is your farm? Uh, Eighteen acres um, altogether. So yeah, small by modern farming standards, but you know keeps us mm. busy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Indeed. If you've been around ancestral food for 10 minutes, you know liver is a superfood. You're looking at a food packed with vitamins A, K, a broad spectrum of B vitamins, CoQ10, bioavailable iron, plus many essential minerals and more. Liver is your first stop when seeking to gain energy and restore your health. Not only is it a delicacy and staple of traditional diets, it's the first thing most animal predators go for when hunting. Are you looking for a good way to work liver into your daily life, but getting it on the table just isn't happening yet or as much as you'd like? This is where liver capsules come in. Allison and I are both supplementing our ancestral diets with liver capsules from One Earth Health. We get all the incredible benefits of liver, even when we're on the road or preparing non-liver meals for our family, and the sourcing and preparation has all been handled for us. One Earth Health produces nutritious organ capsules from 100% grass-fed New Zealand-raised cattle. Support the pod by purchasing through our link, and you'll also get 5% off and free shipping as a bonus. Go to oneearthhealth.com slash ancestralkitchen or check the show notes. So your latest book, Saying No to a Farm-Free Future, was written as a response to a book called Regenesis, by the high-profile English journalist George Monbiot. Right. Now, I know that a lot of our listeners who are in the States um, might have heard Diana Rogers talk about George Monbiot on her podcast, The Sustainable Dish, but perhaps won't know who he is. So can you explain to us who George Monbiot is and what that book is about? Right. Well, he, um, I mean, he's a, a kind of campaigning journalist. Um, um, he writes for The Guardian. He's written lots of books. Um, I mean, over the years, I've been a, a huge admirer um, of his work. Um, uh, and um, he basically, he's kind of historically has been one of the few um, voices kind of um, pushing a, a sort of radical green environmental perspective in the mainstream media here in the UK and and you know it's basically coming from a from a sort of left-wing perspective 
Um, and that was partly why I felt the need um, to to write my book. I mean, I've engaged positively with him on, on, on one or two things over the years, including a critique of these the, the, these kind of um, sort of high tech techno fix sort of corporate mm. you know food system um, tweaking that goes on, and and he's kind of drifted in recent years. You know, I think probably for reasons that um, you know that 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 you know that he has his rationale for it, which I think is well intended, but I think wrong. <laughs> um, but he's kind of drifted in, into um, endorsing these technologies, and I felt the need to write the book partly because of who he is, because I think a lot of people who perhaps don't necessarily know much about the food and farming system, but, you know, they're kind of progressive, um, um, well-intentioned people, you know, will read his stuff and and think, oh, well, you know, if George Monbiot says this is OK, then, um, you know, then it, then it must be OK because, you know, he's, you know, he's this voice of, of, of um, progressive green thinking so I you know that's kind of why I felt the need you know it's kind of unusual to write a book that targets um somebody else's book but that that was largely the reason and also because um you know the book was very much an exploration of the food system and, and you know there's a lot of things in his book I agree with he's got a critique of the, the the kind of mainstream industrial farming system which I largely agree with um but um but yeah, in in a way, it was a good foil to setting out an alternative uh, perspective uh, of mine, which you know you mentioned my first book, A Small Farm Future. So I'm very much coming from the perspective of um, local um, sort of community and household based approaches to food. You know, building up uh, from the grassroots our capacity to produce diverse whole foods um you know which is um good for human health and i think good for for ecosystem health as well ultimately um so yeah you know in a way it was a good foil for putting those alternative arguments yeah so the listeners who perhaps haven't heard of george you've explained who he is and his book basically paints a, a picture of a future where we are fed by industrially produced precision fermentation fake food and we industrialise further than we are and then allow the rest of the land, which was used for farming, to be rewilded and for other species to be introduced into that and for that to become a place that is, is not farmed. Is that a good summary of Regenesis? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a, a key driving um, uh, force from his point of view for uh, manufactured food, um, the, you know, the pressure that farming puts on, um, on wild ecosystems. Um, uh, there's kind of some ambiguities in the book. I think, you know, my book is 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 um you know has kind of farm free um in in the title and as does his book and there's a question as to you know how much he's arguing for 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 farm free um and you know what what you actually mean you know there's different types of farming and i think you know his book tends to not distinguish all that much between different types of farming but yeah that that's as you just put it that's that's basically the rationale that um that um, the, the sort of existing farming is putting too much pressure on nature. Um, climate change, uh, of course, is another huge issue. And so the way that we deal with this is 
sort of essentially by abstracting ourselves from nature, removing ourselves um, as far as possible from wild ecosystems, letting them regenerate, letting them be and feeding ourselves through these sort of high tech methods. I mean, ultimately, it's although George doesn't really kind of explore this issue in his book, ultimately, it's a kind of argument for urbanisation um, and for, um, yeah, for, for basically using um generated energy to um produce our foods um for people to move into cities abstract themselves from nature um you know he's uh he he's basically there's a place in his vision for horticulture um you know for fresh fruit and veg um but you know the real focus of it is on macronutrients particularly protein but you know people are also arguing in terms of fat and carbohydrate that that that, that Mm -hmm. those macronutrients can be produced using these manufactured methods so um yeah so the the logic of it is about protecting nature and about um climate change to some extent um so yeah yeah i think it what you said that his critique of farming doesn't distinguish between um and industrial methods and what might be called regenerative methods seems like incredibly important for the work that i'm doing and the listeners to our podcast that people just seem to forget that not all farming farming wasn't industrial a couple of hundred years ago and not all farming is industrial and there is another way and you can't say the same things about industrial agriculture as you can about um, smaller farms who are working with regenerative methods and it it seems like it's so much simpler to just tar the whole thing with one brush and put a clear message out there rather than have a more nuanced discussion about the details of something. Um, yeah, I mean, he's... Co- and Sorry. Mm. No, go on. Well, I was going to say, yeah, he's, he has become quite dismissive about um, uh, regenerative or small-scale farming, and I think partly that's to do with this notion that we live in these uh, kind of urban society, you know, mass urban society Mm. and that you know time isn't on our side in terms of um uh you know figuring out food and energy system dynamics in terms of climate change but you know the problem is it's it's kind of it's sort of doing the same thing over and you know we've sort of backed ourselves into a corner in terms of high energy urbanism and and the uh, you know to my to my mind the answer isn't more of the same you know to sort of get ourselves out of there but but yeah his analysis of industrial food systems isn't that great and uh, you know i think one thing he doesn't really address is that we've got this huge overproduction of um cheap commodity crops globally which is pressed by the the wider economic system you know every you know pretty much every part of the world figured out uh, as you know as you were just saying figured out a, a renewable local food system um that was low energy input and was, you know, more or less keyed to, to the local ecology by trial and error over a long period of time. And, you know, what we've had with the emergence of high energy fossil fueled um, sort of globalisation 
is this pressure for every part of the world. It's kind of a comparative advantage mm. thing. You know, every part of the world is now pressed into producing, you know, one or a handful of commodity crops um, to sort of flood global markets and, 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 and try and, you know, lower input costs, try and maximise profit. And, you know, the, the result of that globally, historically, has sort of been this real overemphasis on uh, essentially cheap grains, you know, cheap cereals. I mean, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you, you will know this better than, than I will, but, you know, so then it's like we've got this huge surfeit globally of cheap grains, you know, what do we do with them? Well, you know, we can feed them into intensive livestock yeah. operations or we can make biofuels or we can make processed, um, you know, sort of junk food essentially so he doesn't he doesn't really address that side of it you know so so to my mind before we start talking about oh we need to lower the impact of farming upon nature by you know by these very high-tech methods you know we need to look at the the the, the, the kind of drivers of the existing farm system towards expansion towards overproduction towards oversimplification you know around these mostly um cereal crops and um grain legume crops which you know uh, obviously we can debate the rights and wrongs of those crops but um you know they have their place but you know the far too you know something like 70 percent of global cropland is devoted to, to 10 crops you know most of which are cereals or grain legumes and you know soya and wheat rice maize mm -hmm. obviously being the big ones so you know that he doesn't really address that um and and as you know and as you were saying he kind of yeah, it's just a little bit dismissive about um, regenerative and 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 local, more diverse um, agroecological ways of, of farming. So yeah, you know that that I think is a big problem in in the analysis. And what you, what you said earlier, you know, we kind of backed ourselves into the corner as you were describing that. I could feel that. I could feel kind of like what we've done by ignoring those thousands of years of hard and wisdom from local farming communities what we've done gradually over the last hundred or so years is literally back ourselves into a corner and now his solution to get out of that corner is further urbanization and as you said precision fermentation of mainly protein what is different about um your response to that when i was reading your book i felt like your book doesn't say i don't like this idea it says clearly this idea will not work <laughs> and I think our listeners kind of know it won't work from a health point of view because most of them have been on long health journeys and they know they need to eat real food but you know that it won't work economically can you explain to our listeners why right well, there's, I guess there's two sides to it. Um, you know, one is um, the, the, the sort of economic and social side of it. You know, what, what kind of society is going to emerge out of that? And, you know, is that going to be a viable society? Is it going to be the kind of society that people want to live in or will be sustainable? Mm -hmm. And then there's a slightly more kind of technical side to it in terms of um, whether it will work energetically um so i don't know which, which of those shall we talk about um, i think um just about the society you talking about that uh, reminds me of what i've talked about with my husband many times which is when we make our decisions around what we're buying who we're um supporting the food we put on our plates the way we live our life we try to think what is the sort of society i want to live in mm, mm. and and 
I don't. I vote with my with my cash to to promote the society that I want to live in. Yeah. And I don't want to live in a highly urbanized society. Yeah. Where that kind of food is produced. So I feel like our listeners know that, you know, and they've gone probably some way to trying to create a society like you have on your farm mm. where life is different. Mm. The energy side, I didn't understand clearly until I read your book. So could you talk to us about the energy side of it? Right. So, I mean, yeah, I think it's it's worth um, trying to sort of get our heads around what this technology is. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm not a biotech person. I'm a social scientist by training, but I have spent more more time than feels healthy pouring over these <laughs> these kind of bi- biotech papers <laughs> to try and get my head around it. Uh, and I suppose one thing to say is, you know, there are quite a number of different um, biotechnologies around, um, you, you know, manufactured food or, you know, the so-called fake meat. Um, and, you know, some of them um, involve actually taking animal cells and then growing them sort of in a in, in the lab as it were to, mm-hmm. to, to produce meat and I think it's widely agreed including by Monbio in his book that you know that is not really going to scale as a um, uh, you know as a, as a sort of mass mm-hmm. solution for feeding people so I think we can probably leave that one aside what he does mm-hmm. focus on is um, what a lot of people are calling precision fermentation which I think is a, a little bit of a sort of PR marketing term but um but basically that what it is is um there is a, a type of bacterium that originally is a it's, a it's a sort of soil living bacterium but it's been very highly developed in biotech applications over the years and um it's a hydrogen oxidizing bacterium so basically you you know you, you you get a culture of this bacteria. You put it in a steel bioreactor. You feed it um, principally hydrogen and oxygen, but a, a bunch of other things that you you know other chemical elements that you have to provide for it as well, uh, which is a non-trivial undertaking. Um, but the key thing is hydrogen and oxygen. So you feed it this, and that enables it to um, to grow to to to, to reproduce. And so you end up with this um, big slurry of bacterial biomass, um, which is high in protein, um, and that's the basis of um, of, of the food. Um, and it, I mean, it's worth pointing out, I guess, that it is basically bacterial biomass that you're eating. So unlike traditional fermentation, where you use yeah. microorganisms to um, to modify um, a, a you know a, an existing food stuff, here we're talking about um, you know purely bacterial matter uh, and there are some health issues with it in terms of endotoxins and nucleic acids mm-hmm. and so on which you know it's I didn't focus on that in my book you know the 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 biotech people will say that they can you know filter all that out and make it um, edible and obviously mm-hmm. you know that that that's the whole other um, kind of debate mm-hmm. to have about it but the aspect of it that I, that I focus on my book is the energy side to it so as I said mm-hmm. you need to feed them hydrogen and oxygen 
the main way that we get hydrogen um, as an industrial chemical in the modern world um, is from fossil fuels, from, from gas, basically. Um, but the whole point of this is that it's supposed to be a renewable, um, you know, low carbon technology. So, you know, we, so we can't do that. Uh, where you mm. where you otherwise will get the hydrogen and oxygen from is by electrolyzing water. So you basically you know pass a lot of electric current through water and and break it down into its constituent parts of hydrogen and oxygen. Where do you get that electricity from? Well, um, you know if we if we're talking about um, low carbon electricity. Uh, you, we will have to get it from a low carbon source, so maybe from you know solar panels, or maybe from wind power or nuclear power. Um, but it's tremendously, um, you know, to, to break down water is a tremendously energy costly um, thing to do. So, if we compare this to traditional agriculture, you know, traditional agriculture uses the sun. You know that we get solar energy, you know, low carbon um, solar energy for free. Obviously, the solar energy is diffuse and so that is historically why people have been diffuse you know we we spread out and um and take advantage of of sunlight and then that leads into you know all of the issues about urbanization ruralization our impact on nature and so on but what we're doing you know with the with this manufactured food route is using generated electricity to produce food now we're in this historical moment when um you know we're using more and more fossil fuels than ever before you know climate change is um you know is a huge potentially civilization threatening issue we need to decarbonize um our energy system and we're not you know, globally, we're not doing a great job of that. You know, we need to stop mm. using um, uh, um, internal combustion engine cars, for example. You know, we need to stop um, using um, uh, using fossil fuels to power sort of industries and houses. So we need to decarbonise. And, and, you know, a lot of industries mm. don't really have many options to do that except through electricity. You know, if you want to make steel, for example, instead of using... A, coal in a blast furnace you know you might use a sort of uh, electric arc uh, technology so there's a huge demand for electric energy which you know we're not doing a great job of decarbonizing it as it is and now we're in this situation mm. where people are saying oh well you know let's make our food using low carbon electricity yeah. and i'm you know that's kind of what i'm saying in the book you know this is crazy you know if we had uh you know huge amounts of of surplus low carbon electricity knocking around that we didn't know what to do with well yeah then maybe maybe there'd be a case for this technology on energetic grounds but you know we're not even decarbonizing the existing energy system and you know there's all these industries that are desperately trying to decarbonize looking for um for, for low carbon electricity you know the one industry that can be energized in a in a, yeah. in a low carbon way is agriculture we can just use yeah. the sun and for sure we need to do that in a more thoughtful way you know i'm not i'm not questioning monbio's arguments that um you know as we were saying earlier that the modern farming and food and farming system has a lot of um environmental negatives associated with it but you know basically using abundant low carbon solar energy um, to energize our food production rather than precious 
generated electricity. Um, it's kind of a no-brainer. And I, I, you know, I go through the figures in Monbiot's book. I think he gets them wrong, basically. And you know, we're looking at, you know, if we were um, if we were trying to feed. Um, all of humanity, um, certainly in terms of calories, you know, we'd be looking at something like 90 times um, more solar energy than we than, than, you know, we're currently producing globally uh, at a bare minimum, you know, that's being generous to the to the technology. Um, uh, so, you know, it just doesn't really stack up energetically, in my view. Yeah, I want to read a quote from your book about that, where you, you talk about that 90 times, because the, the figures are just astounding. Like you said, it's a no-brainer. So from your book, you say, to meet all of the global population's calorific needs using manufactured calories, assuming they're safe to eat, would use, at an improbably bare minimum, more than three times the world's current electricity supply, or more than eight times its current low-carbon electricity supply, or more than 91 times its current solar electricity supply. And like you said, we're, we need to decarbonize. We need to take our energy level down. And so it is a no-brainer that this potential solution is not a solution. So, you know, the fact that your book basically says that this won't work with figures that, that show that it is not a solution that is feasible for us going forward. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Would you like more support to help you eat, cook and live ancestrally? If so, come and check out our community at patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast. We've got so many goodies over there that will help guide, inspire and support you in this journey we're taking together. There's our exclusive podcast where Andrea and I talk more intimately about what's happening in our kitchens and lives there are so many after-show bonuses, downloads, extra audios and resources. We have a forum where you can ask and answer questions. And we even host a monthly chat where we get together and talk all the ancestral kitchen things. We love cooking and eating this way. And this community and library of resources is what we would have wanted when we started out. Check out www.patreon.com forward slash ancestral kitchen podcast to get started. I want to talk about I want to talk about your alternative now um, and because you in in the the beginning of the book you you look at precision fermentation and the energy and you explain all that and then you go on to um, say an alternative solution using the diffuse energy that we have free from the sun um, can you explain what your alternative to this future vision is well, I mean, the alternative, I think, is the need um, for agrarian localism. You know, I, I said earlier that most parts of the world have figured out a, um, a, 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 a low energy input mixed farming system. I mean, you, you know, typically um, it, it's involved um, uh, ruminant livestock and, and a sort of rotation mm -hmm. between grass and um you know some cropland including cereals and grain legumes but i mean i would say this i'm a veg grower but you know i think we need to mm -hmm. put a bit more emphasis um you know on gardening and you know fruit vegetables um but you know most um, most parts of the world have figured out a, a system that sort of integrates um you know 
grass, legumes, ruminants, other livestock and fruit and veg. Um, and, you know, you get the, the, the argument you get is, that, oh, well, yeah, but, you know, now we have eight billion people on the planet and, you know, we're this urban planet. That's not feasible. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we have to sort of pick that argument apart. Um, it, you know, the, the the industrial food system is not more productive of food per unit area per acre than these kind of local um, low input systems. You know, if anything, you can produce more uh, per acre um, with a with a sort of low input um, job rich traditional agriculture. Um, the you know the, the real issue is that um, the modern industrial farming system has removed labour um, from you know you you produce more per farmer um with a with a sort of high energy modern system that focuses on you know the small range of commodity crops that i was talking about earlier you don't produce um more per acre so in terms of the capacity of the planet to produce a a healthy complex um whole food diet i don't see that as a problem the problem is is a kind of social and economic one which is that you know we live in a kind of global economic system which emphasizes people uh, you know not having access to land you know living in cities mm. um not not working in food and farming but you know sort of feeding the beasts as it were you know feeding the the, the big growth mm. economy in other ways and relying on these um you know big scale industrialized oversimplified farming systems to keep cranking out you know the 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 macronutrients so the real challenge is um is to move away from that to you know to for us to re-engage as individuals households uh, local communities um societies with the need to produce food um and you know that's that's hard to do within the the the, the kind of existing parameters of the of of the sort of global growth economy but i think it's going to happen anyway because of these energy dynamics that we were just talking about you know the whole the whole of this kind of global economy has been propped up on cheap fossil fuels and that's what's enabled us to urbanize you know it's what's enabled us to you know to develop this 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 kind of um growth-based industrial system but i personally i just don't really see how that is going to be sustainable in the long run and you know that that's kind of the nub of this argument really you get people who will say oh yeah but we can you know we can decarbonize we can use um pv and other low carbon sort of techniques you know we can keep this whole kind of um industrial growth economy on the road and and you know if you think that well yeah you know maybe you know i think those sort of figures that we were just banding around about uh you know how much we need you know how much more energy we need uh, the, the energy stuff is complex because if we electrify in some ways we need less energy than with the um than with fossil fuels but on balance it, it seems to me that um you know it's going to be hard to retain a uh you know a clean energy highly urbanized highly industrialized um system as going forward you know in relation to you know to so many different things you know partly climate and energy you know political issues 
the sort of geopolitics that we're seeing, you know, with sort of like the, the you know, the, the different centres of global power, you know, the US, the EU, China, Russia. So, you know, there's so, so many issues um, wrapped up in all that in terms of, um, you know, the extent to which we can keep the, 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 the sort of urban, um, urban industrial growth economy on on the road um sorry i've been going on so long i've, I've forgotten your original question no, wh- <laughs> <laughs> uh, my my original question was what is your solution okay and right there's right. there's yeah. there's a short phrase in your book where you say unleash ordinary people and trust them yeah. to start developing <laughs> local food systems yeah so that's and i just thought that kind of unleash ordinary people you know they did it for thousands of years yeah. and it worked yeah yeah and just rather than i mean, george monbiot comes from a kind of a socialist background and i think that must influence his work because he's kind of um his systems are working on well let's find a way that we can organize everyone rather than the that unleash ordinary people which is is much more a kind of a self-generated solution yeah, that's and yeah. It, oh, no, sorry. Although he's a, he's you know he's a socialist and he's like you said a green kind of um, influencer, but then but his solution can be picked up by the other side of the scale, the capitalists, who then see that as an opportunity to make a profit, and that's where the kind of I feel like there's a a danger for influencing people's thoughts about it mm. because. Um, you know, capitalism and that side of it has incredible influence over media and over what's put out there. And so if they can take that idea and see it as a way to make money and then put that out back into the world through the power they have through the media, then it becomes offered as a solution which people then don't question. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important, the point you just raised about profits and uh, yeah I'd, I'd like to sort of make a couple mm. of remarks about that but also the point you made about socialism is sort of interesting in that some of the old political categories we had of left and right are sort of breaking down mm. a little bit at the moment mm. and, and socialism you know a lot of people think oh well socialism or communism it's it's something it's something that's completely opposite to capitalism but actually I mean I talk about this a bit in the book you know you have to put both in the context of a, of a wider culture of of modernism or, or or modernity which is about kind of move progress moving forwards mass solutions and you know socialists and capitalists have sort of different ways of of articulating that but in many ways they're on the same page and I mean I I wrote a blog post recently called two lefts where I I I sort of made the point that you just did really that there's there are convergences between um sort of certain kinds of left wing and certain types of capitalist positions now which you know and you see that a lot you know movements like eco-modernism that I talk about in the book or um, you know a lot of writers on the left are embracing technocratic solutions and ultimately putting their faith in corporations or you know or sort of corporate government linkages which again I talk about a bit in the book so there's a kind of convergence there and on the other hand there's this more grassroots sort of libertarian um kind of approach and i mean it's funny because you know my background you know i sort of come out of a sort of left-wing progressive 
political tradition, but I find, you know, in, in many ways now I have more in common, um, you know, certainly in the US, for example, a lot of people of a more conservative mindset are um, interested in, um, yeah, you, you know, they're quite critical of corporate capitalism. They're more into building up their local mm. communities, building up their own sort of family and household and homestead sort of um uh, capacities and uh, you know it may be that, that there's things that we might disagree on but I, I kind of that's sort of more the um, you know the framing that I think is 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 going to generate um, solutions you know it's not a kind of top-down one-size-fits-all solution you know we've got this big global problem oh you know here's this new technology that's going to solve it you know mm. I, I wrote a, a little paper recently where I said you know once you let go of this idea that there's kind of one singular one-size-fits-all yeah. solution, then that opens up lots of vistas for all sorts of ways of, um, um, you know, dealing with problems, um, you know, locally, um, connecting with people, um, you know, trying to, you know, not, not trying to sort of solve the, 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 the problems of the world in one fell swoop, but, you know, deal with um, issues that you're facing locally and, and, and sort of, um, you know, um, connecting with your community, um, connecting with food uh, uh, and so on, you know. So that I think that's the way we need to, to think about it. Um, but the, yeah, in terms of the profit system, I mean, I think, you know, this is an interesting one where... Um, uh, you know, one thing that Monbio says is essentially, well, you know, the food system, uh, I mean, you know, he's mindful of the fact that things like manufactured food can be co-opted by big corporations. But mm. he, he says, well, you know, the food system is already heavily corporatized. And that's true. But it's nothing like as corporatized as industrial um, manufacturing systems. I mean, you know, if you think about um, the makes of car that are available or computers, you know, mm. we're talking about a handful of global corporations dominating the entire um, industrial sector. Whereas if you talk about food and farming, for sure, there are big corporations that dominate a lot of the, the global trade or a lot of the, the products that you can buy in the supermarket. But, you know, if you just look around a neighbourhood, even in cities, you know, there are gardens, there are community gardens, allotments, you know, small farms. The, the food system is inherently less uh, you know, um, prone to monopoly than the industrial system. And so this is one of my big worries um, with um, the manufactured food narrative is that it, it almost, um, you know, this argument of, of, of sort of removing humans from a land footprint becomes um, a, a logic of industrial monopolization and you can sort of fight all you like and say no 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 that's not you know that's not what i want that's not that's that's not my vision but that's the reality of um of of industrial systems particularly yeah. uh, you know in terms of the relationship that they have with central government and particularly as we increasingly move into these emergency situations where governments will say oh well you know climate is a problem mm. energy is a problem you know we need to feed the people the science says this you know we're going to invest in this um, manufacturing technology you know the manufactured food you know even if energetically it's it's a bit of a no-brainer because you know governments have got power and they've got finance so you know these are the ways that the chips i think um um might easily fall and it's quite a dystopian um 
uh, yeah. um, vision really of of corporate government um, kind of um, power to determine the food system that locks ordinary people. You know, ordinary people. You know, I I, I freely admit that most ordinary people are already locked out of access to land and access to good food. Mm. So that you know, the the key battle in my view is. To, is to try and um, overturn that to try and you know create more access to to gardens to allotments to small farms to the productive uh, capacities of local land to feed people whereas you know this manufacturing food narrative is going in exactly the opposite direction it's, uh, and, and you know to some extent it's um it's um um uh sorry i got distracted there my my phone went off um uh, there there's so many things in what, in what you said chris um i you know, when you would you describe that kind of dystopian i i'm kind of angry and i'm hanging my head and i'm just like i just <laughs> don't want that for humanity's future and your vision of agrarian localism yeah. you know where people are back on the land around them using low energy mixed farming to produce their food you're you said earlier, you know, it, it's going to happen anyway because we're heading for a place where we're not going to be able to use fossil fuels because they won't be there anymore. But I think right. that a lot of people, because of this modernist mindset that you describe in the book, because of the idea that tech's going to save us, a lot of people can just too easily look the other way. And yeah. this idea that... that tech is the answer you, you do such a good job in your book explaining how technology as god has become such a part of our culture that it's it's woven into the way we think yeah how do we get people to realize that technology is not going to save them before it's obvious that technology is not going to save them and all hell breaks loose well, it's a great question, and I, I wish I had a good answer to it because you know I, I, I think that's the key question. Um, I mean, it's um, it's uh, you know I think we've got very wrapped up in this progress narrative where we look scornfully back at the past and say, oh, you know, look mm. look how awful, uh, you know, look how much better our society is, and and you know, there's there's so many ways in which uh, you know, obviously, there's all sorts of wonderful things about the modern world that you know that science and technology and and energy, you know, have unleashed, but also an, an awful lot of dysfunction and um, you know, poor health outcomes and you know, exploited labour and you know, to some extent. Uh, I've talked about this in one or two other podcasts. It's almost like there's these two different narratives um, about how we got to where we are now. You know, one is that people hated being tied to the land. And as soon as, you know, industry and urbanism um, sort of took off, people like willingly downed their spades and hoes and, and, and sort of went off to the cities. The other narrative is that, no, you know, the, the way that arose was through coercion, through enclosure, um, you know, I often think of the, the the slave system, you know, producing sugar and cotton, you know, enslaved African labour. That was the original industrial food system. You know, it wasn't people choosing to produce these global commodities. It was, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, it was always coercion from the start. And you could say there's a grain of truth in both of those um, narratives. But ultimately, I think we've got into this very... Um, problematic modern mindset that um you know if we do anything that looks like the way things people you know uh, 
did in our image of the past you know if you see somebody uh you know with a spade in a in, in a garden you know it's yeah. uh, or you know using a horse you know to plow a field or something like that yeah. it's redolent of this sort of notion and and you know again Monbiot feeds this narrative you know he talks about bucolic romanticism and and you know and I talk about the whole notion of romanticism in in, in the book you know um, so I think we need to get over that and, and, and for sure not not to sort of say, oh, wouldn't it be great if we all lived like people did a thousand years ago? You know, this isn't trying to restore some idealised image of the past. What it is is just mm. saying, well, look, people in the past, you know, every society faces problems always, you know, throughout human history. Every society has to wrestle with um you know how do we, you know, uh, how do we deal with the issues of, of the day as we see them? And what I'm saying is basically, you know, let many societies in the past wrestled with exactly the problem that we face now, which is, you know, how do we produce good food in a low energy way? And we can be inspired and learn from, you know, their, their answers. You know, we are the inheritors of their agricultural um solutions and 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 wisdom doesn't mean we have to do everything exactly as they did but you know i kind of think we need to get over ourselves a bit and say well look where the trends in our present society are heading uh it you know that that future doesn't look that enticing uh what are, what are the other options and you know we can learn um, you know, we can learn from the way that people in the past, or people, um, you know, indigenous knowledges, people in, in, you know, in, in other types of cultural orientations to food and land, um, you know, the answers that they have come up with. Um, so, you know, it, it's easily said, but I think we've got these very powerful blinkers around progress, high energy, high mm. capital, urbanism. Um, and I, you know, w what I would, what I would like is for us to be able to, you know, to let go of that. Not, you know, not, not, to, not to um, necessarily let go of it entirely, or to, or to disavow aspects of of modern society, but just to um, do a bit more lateral thinking. Um, and yeah, you know, my my sort of Twitter byline is. Um, is you know trying to come up with agrarian localism by design so so it doesn't arrive by default and you know and i think that is important yeah. because you know we could have a small farm future which is a pretty grim dystopian one um you, you know if we don't um try and prefigure it and try and bring it about in better ways where we work with each other um you know more um more collectively and and, and you know try and make it happen rather than it happening in a kind of emergency kind of collapse chaotic way which is certainly where we're we're you know potentially ahead uh, at the moment so yeah it, it's a key question and i don't have a great answer other than by you know i mean all i can do is is, is kind of keep banging on about it keep doing yeah. but but you know i think and, and, yeah. and i think in a way the book you know this this book that we're talking about felt to me important in the sense of just sort of saying look you know this this high tech answer does not stack up, you know, do not kind of um, put all your eggs in that basket, you know, don't put your faith in this high energy, high tech, high capital solution, it's not going to work. So, okay, so if that's not going to work, what, you know, what else must we do? Well, then we do need to start thinking about using less energy we do need to question urbanism and you know it it it, it means that we have to start um questioning 
our sort of economic and social organization and not just assuming that there's some kind of high you know high high energy high capital high tech way that's going to bail us out and and you know as we've been saying there's there's elements of that sort of high high capital high tech life that are not that great anyway you know it's kind of like the old cartoon of the guy saying i hate my job but i need it to pay for my car and you know i, I hate driving but i need it to get to my job you know we you know we need to think our way out of that vicious circle i think wake up <laughs> exactly yeah hey you washing the dishes <laughs> been there You've heard Allison and I talk over and over about her love of rye sourdough bread. Well, I might actually call it an obsession, but that's neither here nor there. Now you can make Allison's rye sourdough in your own kitchen with her as your teacher. And she's a really good teacher. Rye is economical, it's delicious, and full of nutrients and low in gluten. There's a reason why it has been a darling of bread bakers for centuries. Make it into sourdough, as Allison will show you in her course, Rye Sourdough Bread, Mastering the Basics. And you've got an amazing, tasty, and nutritious staple in your kitchen. It's traditional, and it's nutritional. In this course, you'll learn everything there is to know about how she creates and maintains her rye sourdough starter, all about whole grain sourdough rye, including the key differences between baking with rye and wheat, how to make two loaves, an everyday rye sandwich bread, and a delicious Russian-style dark rye loaf, and what to do with your sourdough discard, including video walkthroughs for sourdough pancakes and a tasty, sweet, spiced cake. Head to www.ancestralkitchen.com slash rye. I feel like there's a, there's a, there's an inertia energy around it you know that in the present situation where we're still riding on fossil fuels the people who um are looking away are doing so because you know they don't with a tech answer they don't have to change what they're doing they don't have to change their high energy mm. high capital you know just the way that they live their lives because changing your life is, is a hard thing and changing society is a really hard thing but you know this podcast and the work that I do has the word ancestral in it and so many people feel what you've just been describing that we can learn from the past and take all that wisdom mm. and bring it forward into a world where there's sanitation you know mm. and we have a lot of other things that that we've done that can be utilized to help us mm. and you know when when you see people getting a garden and putting their soil in the hands it, it it does change them so that right to land is really important mm. because once people start getting involved in living differently there is an energy and a pull in that which can break through that inertia i think yeah. i wondered what you thought about the but role of education because you've talked about in the book and now about how the social kind of political situation we've got is a big part of the problem and it mm. feels like our education system now is just about making cogs for a machine you mentioned something about it earlier on mm. and without changing that it feels like we're creating this next generation that's just going to have that same mindset and I wanted your opinion on kind of how you feel education fits into this 
Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, a, a slightly oblique way of getting into that. I, I was thinking when you were just talking about people's um, sort of energy when they get involved in food production, there's a very sort of interesting and, and curious part of Monbiot's book where he talks about visiting his grandmother when he was a child and how he, she taught, you know, she was a sort of country woman who, um, you know, grew a lot of her food and knew about um, edible mushrooms and taught him how to fish and to make um, flies for catching fish and so on. And and there's this kind of real palpable feel in that part of his, of his book about, you know, how he gained his love of nature and his care about mm. the environment from her and from being being in this rural environment where he learned about, um, you know, plants and animals and mushrooms and so on. But then he sort of goes on to be scornful about his grandmother's diet and sort of say that, you know, she sort of she ate these various horrible kinds of meat and, um, you know, sort of, I don't know, boiled cabbage or whatever. And, 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 and he kind of talks about his modern diet with sort of coconuts and chilies and all this stuff from all around the world and how much better it is. And, and it's kind of a weird... You know, it's a weird thing, but um, uh, uh, in many ways, because I think his modern diet is is part of a kind of global, you know, set of high energy food supply sort of chains yeah. that are, that are quite problematic. But I suppose the reason I mentioned that in relation to your education question is that a real fear I have about the kind of manufactured food narrative and the the, the urbanization industrialization narrative is that if you know the argument is that if you know if people abstract themselves from nature and, and and live in big cities eating manufactured food you know that creates space for the, for the wild things but that's a huge assumption i you know my feeling is that if people don't really know anything about um nature and their emplacement within it um, that you know the chances of them caring about it are not that great and there's you know any number of other things that um, that that will go on um, sort of in the wild places that people don't see living in the cities that that can be enormously destructive you know so so that's the problem so how do we reverse that through education um, it's, it, again it's another great question to which I don't have a, a great answer but I does you know it does worry me the way that um, you know, the existing education systems, as with everything else in our society, have become, you know, very abstracted from um, the, the the basics of, of, you know, interacting with nature and producing a livelihood. You know, it's like the way that, you know, I mean, you used to sort of have cookery lessons at school and now it's like food, food tech, you know, <laughs> and... Um, uh, I mean, you know, I remember um, my kids when they were at the local school here in Somerset, traditional apple growing part of the world. So to, to their credit, the teachers were like, oh, we're going to make an apple pie because apples are traditional to Somerset. Mm -hmm. But they they did it in July when, uh, you know, it's just about the only time in the year mm -hmm. when uh, you can't actually get no. local apples. So <laughs> so we were, you know, the parents were told to send apples into school so they could make apple pie. And, you know, and all the apples were coming from New Zealand or something you know so yeah. so our poor kids you know we refused to do that so we sent in some we sent them in with uh, black currants instead you know which we, which we got. <laughs> well but, done. but you know that's the level at which we have become so alienated you know even in this area yeah. in Somerset which traditionally has grown apples the local schools you know they know that it's an apple area but you know it, that's 
that's the level of alienation. Mm. Um, you know, on the upside, you know, we have a little educational co-op that we make space for on our holding shared earth learning and they do loads of stuff. I mean, I'm not an educator. I'm not a, a gifted teacher myself, I don't think, but they, you know, they're forest school trained teachers. They do loads of great work. And right. one thing they do is take kids who are um, – um, sort of at risk of being excluded from school, you know, because they, you know, they're basically kids who can't really cope with being cooped up in a classroom for, you know, yeah. to hour after yeah. hour. When they come to our place, uh, it's amazing to see them just engage with, um, you know, the woodland and the insects and the birds and they, you know, they're busy like making things out of wood and, you know, I sometimes, you know, see them, I'm sort of like, wow, these are supposed to be the naughty kids, you know. <laughs> and mm. So, mm. I, you know, I guess if, if there's a positive message, I think that people are in, you know, we are just pretty deeply wired into engaging with the world around us to being interested in plants and animals and you know we've found so many ways to kind of step aside from that and be scornful of that and yet it's still there I think in most of us Mm. so I think whatever any of us can do you know whether it's you know sort of farming and writing as I do or um you know ancestral food systems and 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 Mm. podcasting and or you know grow you know even if it's just growing a few herbs on a windowsill in a you know in a in a in an apartment block you know just whatever we're able to do I think just to keep um you know uh, keep that connection going um you know with each other and with food and with um, you know, the, the, the natural potential of our um, surroundings to, you know, to keep us um, fed and clothed. Uh, you know, I think it's really, really important. Um, but, I, you know, I don't have a kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe my shtick is that there are no kind of single solutions. You know, this is, all, this is about, you know, yeah. multiple grassroots, uh, you know, efforts yeah. for people to do what they can. But it, but it is partly kind of seeing that these kind of, um, you know, one shot, um, technical solutions are not the way to go and then you know what if you can see that you know not that there's you know not that there's no place for technical skill I mean obviously you know farming growing of all kinds you know requires um, an enormous amount of skill but um, yeah just to amplify um, those multiple local grassroots efforts however we can I think yeah I, th- I think I think you're right you know I've spoken to, you know, several people like you who have spaces, who have farms and who've opened up those spaces to other people. And they've said to me again and again that the individuals that visit their um, their nature places and get involved in the farms, get involved with the animals, get involved with the plants, leave transformed. Yeah, you know, yeah. Mentally and in intellectually in every kind of way. And so the the idea of doing what each of us can with the resources that we have and then opening doors connecting like Mm. like we do as humans you know in communities and and banging on about it in those communities yeah and then allowing that if there's space to involve other people yeah it's frustrating because it's not a kind of oh i can get this in the guardian and i've got the power of, of of you know big industry behind me who can shout about it yeah but 
it, it relies on the, the power of the individual, like you said, yeah. unleash, unleashing the power of the individual yeah. and, and spreading that way to create this. Yeah. Um, I mean, so the system's in place when we need it. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'd add there, uh, just, just on that note, I, I'm, a, I'm a big mm. believer in allotments and community gardens and, and people, um, you know, within their local communities sort of take, you know, basically getting access to growing space and i think part of that is um i mean we in fact we have some allotments um on our land that we make available to local people and and you know when people have mm -hmm. have a small plot and their own time they invest so much um um sort of love and care and and and, and you know incredibly productive spaces um um, and, you know, whereas when you're growing on a bigger scale, you know, you have to sort of oversimplify and you, you know, you tend yeah. to, you tend to use more, um, you know, uh, imported energies or, you know, tractors or, you know, w w whatever mm. it might be. And there's a great book by um, Dave Goulson. I, I sort of almost think of it as the opposite of, of Monbiot's approach. I mean, he's a, okay. um, his book is called, is it Silent Earth or Silent Planet? He's an insect, um, he's a biologist, uh, academic insect, uh, yeah, in, insect expert. And, you mm. know, he's done a lot of work just showing, that you know, the so-called insect apocalypse about, you know, the decline of, of, of wild insect species and and a lot of that has to do with farming so you know it connects with Monbiot's critique of of um the industrial farm system mm. you know it's not only farming isn't the only cause of insect decline but it's certainly a big one and and, and a lot of that is about um pesticides insecticides um fertilizers um you know sort of grubbing up of hedgerows sort of scaling up um farming and and so on and that has all these kind of cascading um effects but all of those technologies are essentially ways of taking labor out of farming you know the reason that big scale farming uses uses so many pesticides and fertilizers is essentially because um it's taken the people out of it so you know along the lines of what you were just saying my argument is however we can at whatever level we can we need to put the people back into yeah. um you know not necessarily big scale field agriculture but you know we need to try and minimize the amount that we do that and one way we can do that is by um you know by growing food ourselves um either individually or or within our communities um in order to do that, we need access to growing space. And so things like pressurising councils for allotments is a really key thing. And, you know, Goulson's done some research on that. And one of the findings, obviously, is that um, if you're growing food on a small scale for yourself, you don't tend to use lots of noxious chemicals, you know, part, yeah. <laughs> partly because you obviously, you know, why would you know, you wouldn't put that on the food that you're going <laughs> to eat yourself. Mm -hmm. um, and also you don't necessarily need to so much because... Um, you know because when you're investing your labor in a small plot you can find other ways of dealing with you know agricultural pests and so on so i think it's really important um you know for people to come together and pressurize the powers that be locally to give them access to the uh, capacity to produce food and you know that that can manifest in many different ways um but you know just that 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 sort of idea of um you know we need to take charge of of, of our own capacity to produce food um you know however humbly and, and uh, but i think amateur food production is really vital it's a vital part of this you know it's not just about 
you know, tweaking the parameters of big agricultural systems. Um, you know, it's a much more fundamental change about who is producing food and, and how they're doing so. I think that uh, our listeners who've kind of done that to whatever extent they can, whether it's just, a, you know, herbs on a balcony or, or a large farm, would kind of say that it, it it's a circle completely because, you know, the more that you're outside in the soil rather than in a cubicle in an office looking at a screen the more you're you know getting the sunlight on you breathing the air moving <clears> around actually using the the body that we have to to keep it fit and healthy like you know like our ancestors used to they used to work the land so they used to stay mobile and so it feels like that feeds back into our physical health and our mental health and improves us as individuals as well as the societies as well as giving us this food without using the fossil fuels yeah exactly it's the kind of virtuous circle and i think you know that's you know one of my arguments is i think you know we need to think of ourselves as animals you know as as protagonists yeah. in an ecology of which we're a part you know and doing doing the same thing as all the other organisms which is you know trying to tr trying to sort of um, make a livelihood and, and and you know sometimes that does mean fighting our corner against you know pests or whatever but you know doing that in a in a, in a thoughtful way but it's a very different mindset i think there's this kind of godlike view i mean you know one of um one of Monbiot's colleagues, Mark Linus, wrote this book, The God Species, which in some ways, um, you know, was one of the precursors to this whole line of tech mm. solutionism. You know, it's this way of thinking of ourselves as, um, you know, we, we have to abstract ourselves from the ecology and that we have this kind of godlike, potentially destructive power. So now we need to sort of turn it into a godlike creative power you know I, I think that's um a really misleading approach and you know we need to think of ourselves more you know just as you were saying as as, as animals that, that that are part of an environment that that need exercise that need food that that need to be sort of down there on the ground sort of doing our thing as it were yeah yeah and i'd, I'd really point listeners to your book and you talk about that really um succinctly in the idea of it being a keystone species right and right yeah. doing what we can to maintain and improve the land uh, around us um rather than moving ourselves away from it or dominating it right it's that kind of middle space yeah um, yeah so, yeah yeah i mean that's um, okay well my last sorry no, yeah yeah no. well I was, I was gonna say that my my last question was, what can we do as individuals who care about what you're doing and believe in what you're doing? And I think we've kind of talked about that in the last 10 or so minutes, just to ask for land, pressure for land, go out on the land, do what we can, connect it and share it, and that it, it's something that needs to come from the ground up slowly yeah. through networks. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously everyone's in a different situation and everyone has different skills, but, you know, basically take an interest, I think, in food and the food system, where your food comes from and, and why, you know, if your food is not, um, you know, maybe the most diverse or healthy, you know, why is that? Start asking questions and start connecting with other people. But, you know, I do think ultimately there's going to be, you know, we do need to think about... Um, 
wider access to land for people and we do need to question the extent to which the heavy degree of urbanization that you know which is only it's a very recent phenomenon really in you know globally um uh, you know we're talking essentially a matter of decades you know um you know is that sustainable i think not and then you know we need to start you know thinking hard about how we um how we change our our kind of uh, you know geopolitics essentially but you know rather than there being one answer to that top down you know that's the whole problem i think it's much better mm. uh, as you were saying to you know to, to to just start connecting with people start thinking about pr producing food start thinking about food systems and, and start generating the kind of um conversations and community politics that can begin to change it mm. yeah thank you well, I think, you know, with the time you've given us, hopefully our listeners are now kind of informed as to, you know, why this is, is so important and they can augment what they're doing and feel kind of secure in, in knowing why what they're doing is good and why the other kind of vision is not something that's feasible for us so yeah your book is called saying no to a farm free future published by the wonderful chelsea green who are doing amazing publishing and i love them what is your website that people can go um to? it's chrismage.com um so i have a blog okay. that i've been doing for um quite a number of years and quite a nice community of people discussing these issues on my blog and you can also there's links to my books and other writings there so and you can get in touch with me through there as well so um yeah that, and you're just on you're on twitter but uh, no other yeah i'm, I'm basically yeah i'm basically on i mean i'm on facebook i'm not a great facebook user but i'm i mean i, I don't mm. don't quite know how it's going to pan out with mr musk but um <laughs> at the moment <laughs> uh, i'm on twitter at, at c smage okay. so yeah okay great Thank you ever so much for your time, Chris. Is there anything else you'd like to share before we finish? Um, no, no, I think that was, uh, well, you know, any number of things to discuss, but um, uh, yeah. uh, but that was, um, no, that, that was great. I mean, I suppose the only thing I'd say is, is that, you know, in terms of the ancestral food focus is I hope, you know, that I think it's really key to, to keep that alive and, and, and not be browbeaten by people into sort of thinking that it's, you know, somehow outmoded or that this new tech has you know is is um you know is is going to sweep everything away and that um you know we've got new answers you know the the the, the, the you know the, the answers are you know there are ancestral answers and and it, you know and it's down mm -hmm. to us to to um you know to live live them out and 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 renew them regenerate them connect with people you know that that's it's got to be the way to do it amen that, that's my mission. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, yeah, all pass to your elbow. Thank you very much, Chris. You're very welcome. Yeah, nice talking with Thank you. Thank you. Bye. All right, bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to continue the conversation. Come find us on Instagram. Andrea's at farm and hearth and Alison's at ancestral underscore kitchen. Until next time, we both wish you much fun, exploration and satisfaction in and out of the kitchen. Mm -hmm.